Welcome to season one of the Comfortably Hungry podcast, where yesterday's dinner is tomorrow's history. If you're a peckish person who is curious about the history of food and drink, then you're in the right place. I'm Sam Bilton, a food historian, writer and presenter, and each season I will be joined by some hungry guests to discuss a variety of topics centred around a specific theme. It can't have escaped your notice that Britain, and indeed much of the world, is in a pretty rubbish place financially speaking. Just about everyone is feeling the pinch from the cost of living crisis at the moment. So that is why I have chosen austerity as the theme for this season. Now I'm not here to provide money or energy saving tips, as there are plenty of other podcasts and websites doing that very well already. What I plan to do with my guests this season is look at how people have coped or reacted in times of austerity in the past. We'll be exploring everything from food riots, heroic ingredients and the origins of some popular energy-saving devices. Although we are living in straitened times, there is no reason why the tradition of the comfortably hungry potluck supper can't continue, especially as the dishes provided are virtual after all. They may well be on the frugal side, but they will undoubtedly be delicious. So to whet everyone's appetites, I've invited my guests to bring along a virtual dish inspired by their topic. Nose to tail eating is an off-sighted mantra, but many modern consumers are squeamish when it comes to offal, or the inwards as William Cobbett likes to refer to them. There seems to be little love in Britain for the livers, hearts, kidneys and sweetbreads that once delighted our forebears. Offal was highly prized by the Romans because there is relatively little of it in an animal compared to flesh. Historian Patrick Fass has dubbed offal as party food because these tender morsels were in limited supply, adored by the Roman elite and therefore commanded a high price. Even in modern day Rome there is an area called Testaccio which is renowned for its offal based cuisine. It's also home to British food writer and Guardian columnist Rachel Roddy who I'll be chatting to later on in this episode. However, there is one particular type of offal that really gives people the heebie-jeebies, and that is tripe. If you're not sure what tripe is, it refers to the stomachs from cows, sheep, pigs and other animals, including giraffes, according to Wikipedia. At best, it is viewed as an antiquated regional delicacy. However, old cookbooks tell another story, with recipes for tripe popping up with regular frequency from the 17th century, whether it be pickled, fried or served with onions. For this two-part episode on this curious ingredient, I have joined forces with food historian Dr Neil Buttery. You may well already know Neil from the fabulous British Food History podcast, which is well worth a listen if you haven't discovered it already. He is the author of A Dark History of Sugar and a biography of the influential 18th century cook Elizabeth Raffald called Before Mrs Beaton, both published by Pen and Sword. You can find a link to Neil's podcast, books and his social media in the show notes. Okay, tripe. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? It is an interesting thing. It's a strange alien thing that um, gives me the creeps. I mean, you like me, we're fairly pro nose to tail eating, but I think it's the one bit between the nose and the tail (laughs) that has basically eluded me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you don't see it for sale. In the, I haven't seen it for sale in Southern Butchers, where I live in Sussex. Mm. So it's not something I've ever had the opportunity to experience. Or if I, when I have had the rare opportunities in my life, I've passed them by. Sure. 
for the same reasons, because it is quite an unusual, as you say, looking and um, to me doesn't look very appetising. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because most awful you think of as kind of like really sort of dark brownie red and it's, and it's really rich, which I guess you could say is equally gross if you're not used to eating it. Uh, I guess that's part of the problem. It's about being used to eating it, I think. But the fact it's white, just it just makes it look like it's bland. And the, the the honeycomb tripe, I think, looks quite pretty. Yeah, it can do, certainly. Uh, when you look at it on Instagram, uh, usually sort of oriental dishes I've found, mostly, mostly when I've done a search on Instagram for tri- tripe, it's, um, yeah, it can look very attractive. I agree. Uh, I've had two brief flirtations with tripe. One was in a Chinese restaurant in Manchester where it was all very spicy and lots of chilli in it. My friend ordered it and I was like, okay, let's have a taste. And I had a bit and I thought, well, that's an unusual texture. But there was so much chilli and stuff going on that I didn't really get a good idea what the tripe was as a food, as a flavour. My other interaction with tripe was an Andriette sausage in Aix-en-Provence, which is one of the very few times I have been actually revolted by eating food. I'm, I'm pretty gung-ho. I'm laughing because my husband had exactly the same experience. I think we were in the Loire and that was, oh goodness, about 18 years ago. And we uh, we went to Lyon last summer and he could not be persuaded. Tripe is big in Lyon. Um, all offal is big in Lyon, to be fair. All meat is big in Lyon. But he could not be mm. persuaded, even though locals tried to tell him, no, it's completely different in this part of France. I think they use calf's intestines rather than pig's intestines. But he wasn't having any of it. He was exactly the same mm. as you. He was once tried scarred for life. He's never going back. Yeah. Well, I kind of thought, well, that's pig tripe. In Britain, it's ox tripe, beef tripe, or whatever you want to call it. So I thought, well, maybe it's a different thing. They're also prepared in very different ways. So I gave it the benefit of the doubt. I guess we'll get onto that. Yeah. I really wanted to get to inspiration. And this is mm. kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to collaborate with you. Because we've I don't know why we've talked about tripe so much in the past. Um, but we've kind of said, oh, it's just such a big hole in our culinary knowledge yeah uh, for me it, it was prompted by the um the first series of comfortably hungry is on austerity and when i was reading through old cookbooks uh certainly from the world around sort of or between the wars and around both first and second world wars they all go on about tripe being this uh very economical and healthy thing to eat it was a form of food economy, really. It was cheap and plentiful. You get an awful lot of tripe, I believe, from one cow. So it's, I was just intrigued, really, like you. I, why don't, why is it something that's so hard to get hold of? And why has it fallen out of favour? Because you can still buy offal for the most part. It's not as perhaps easy, as easy to buy as it was, but you can still get your liver and your kidneys. Mm-hmm. If you've got a good butcher, you should be able to get hearts. But it's, yeah, definitely, I that's what intrigued me. Why It's really, why has it gone from hero to zero in, in quite a short, relatively, historically speaking, in terms of what we deal with, short space of time. And it's so well revered, or it seems to be in, in other countries. And if not revered, maybe it's too strong a word, but it's just part and parcel of everyday food. People just don't think about it. It's just a food. 
I mean, there's certainly a um, Andriette kind of association in in France where they celebrate it. And we certainly don't celebrate it. Well, few foods celebrate like that, I suppose, in this country. You think of tripe and onions, which I think we both know what tripe and onions is, but it's just seems like bland tripe in a bland sauce with no spices really, probably under-seasoned. And it's just like, oh, it just seems so crap. But yeah, it, well, it does really. And it's interesting because Fergus Henderson, he, uh, at the beginning of his recipe that he has for triping onions in his book, Nose to Tail Eating, he actually says, do not let the tripe word deter you. Let its soothing charms win you over and enjoy it as do those who always have. Which is interesting because he's right. People did used to really enjoy it. It was hugely popular, wasn't it? At one point, particularly in the north of the country, you had entire restaurants devoted to selling tripe. Yeah. At one point, I think, I mean, this data might be wrong. The biggest number I found uh, in the Northwest at one point, the UCP, which is the United Cattle Products, which are specialised in preparing dressing tripe and distributing it around the country. They had 146 restaurants in the Northwest alone. Wow. And Levenstume, where I live in South Manchester, there was a tripe shop. It's now um, a, a, a real ale pub. <laughs> How things have changed. <laughs> Indeed. I found an example of one restaurant uh, called Tripe Deluxe, opened by Vos and Sons in 1917 up in the, in the northwest of England. And it was pretty swish. It had 300 covers in it. So it was huge. All wooden panelling, chandeliers. It had an orchestra, a live orchestra. So, you know, it was really was just part of the fabric of, of daily life and obviously considered a treat, at least yeah. in 1917. <laughs> Well, that's that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I, I love the idea that you'd go out for dinner and have an orchestra anyway, but to go out for a dinner at such a specialist restaurant and have an orchestra, mm. I should say it must have been quite a treat, really. It's definitely come a long way. And I think it's suffered a bit of a, a PR crisis, really, over the years. Yeah. If you read George Orwell's descriptions of it, it's they make it sound quite horrendous. I'm not sure when he was right. The Road to Wigan Pier came out, but there's, there's got quite an empty description in there of uh, Mrs. Brooker's tripe shop uh, where he was lodging. And uh, it doesn't endear it uh, <laughs> to me. <laughs> if, I'd, if that had been my only encounter with tripe, I don't think any amount of uh, chilli or tomato was going to persuade me to eat it. So, yeah, I think I say PR crisis is what I think it suffered from. Yes, indeed. And uh, I suppose what we need to do is we need to get some inspiration, don't we? Yeah, so you definitely need some inspiration. And I think that actually, for me, I've looked in old recipe books and it's, as you say, it's pretty much tripe and onions. Depends how far back you go. Robert May, I saw, had a recipe mm. for like a pickled tripe that was um, had lots of garlic in it, which was interesting. Um, perhaps that's a way to go. I'm not familiar with it being served like that quite so much as tripe and onions. But I'm thinking maybe f go further afield. So I had a chat with Rachel Roddy, who writes a column for The Guardian. Rachel has an interesting relationship with tripe because her family are originally from Lancashire. And so she had mm -hmm. actually experienced tripe when she was a child because her grandparents, both her grandparents, as we will hear, used to cook it and in slightly different ways as well, which is interesting. But she's also come across it in Rome, where she lives now, in, and she lives in the quarter called Testaccio. Uh, apologies to any Italian listeners, listeners if I've 
pronounce that incorrectly. I, I'm afraid my Italian accent is much like my French and my Spanish, truly awful. But she lives in what they call the fifth quarter, the, uh, the Quinta Quarto. One of the reasons that part of Italy or that part of Rome rather has achieved that name is because it's famous for its offal. And she has particularly mm. fond of the way that they cook tripe. And so we shall hear more about how they cook tripe in a moment. What is it about tripe and other offal that puts people off from eating it? I was thinking about this. I think the look of it. I think that was the, the, the first thing that struck me, although actually it's quite striking, isn't it, tripe? But actually yeah. a lot of meat is quite, is, is quite striking. So um, I then thought maybe it was also about the familiarity with it. So in both senses that, A, the look of it is unfamiliar, and, and B, then it's an unfamiliar meat. I was wondering whether it was the yeah, other, the, the physical aspect of it, what it looks like. It's a striking thing, tripe, isn't it? It certainly is. It's almost quite alien looking, I think. Certainly if you're not used to seeing things like it's the colour for starters because it's so white. And obviously we think of meat being red um, or pink, but not so white. Is it just a British aversion, do you think? Or is, is this a version shared around the world? Well, I can talk in terms of Rome. So I've been here 18 years. So I feel if you'd asked me 18 years ago, I would have had a very different conversation with you. Although I, w- I would have had a conversation about it, thanks to my grandparents, something we'll come to in a minute. But now having been in Rome for 18 years, it's, it's, it's very familiar and very much part of the culinary landscape here. But I didn't eat it as a child growing up, but certainly I was aware that my grandparents did. And again, now as a food writer, you know, I've, it's bec- I've talked quite a lot about tripe, actually, as part of Northern English food. My grandparents were both from, from Lancashire. And so actually, it's been interesting to find comparisons between Northern English food and Roman food. And also then in my, you know, blurring my lines between the truth and what I write about, you know, it's something I've written about quite a lot. And actually, my mum's observed that maybe my my memories of tribe through my grandparents have become a bit nostalgic. So there's that aspect of it as well. How did your grandparents prepare tribe? So two ways. So my mum's family... Alice, my granny, would do it with white sauce and onions, whereas my dad's family, Phyllis and John Roddy, they would have it with vinegar. Both grandparents used to buy it from United Cow Products because there were shops in the north, weren't there, Sally Tripe? So yes, my mum mum and dad both have very vivid memories as children of eating mum tripe with white sauce and my dad tripe called slut with vinegar. So that was the... Yes. Unfortunate name. name. (laughs) Yeah. So that's what I've asked mum and dad about this. I think I do remember conversations about offal. Also, because as a child, I really liked liver and kidneys, particularly kidneys. And my granny, my my mum's mum, had a pub in Oldham. All my grandparents cooked, but but Alice particularly was a very, was a good cook. And I was, and I, I suppose I talked to food more, but again, I mean, is this my food writer? Is it wanting, me wanting to remember that my granny told me about tribe? Because they're parallels I've drawn quite a lot. And they were very helpful in understanding Roman food, I think, to think about, because I knew that my auntie Mae made soup with a cow heel in it. You know, she cooked with oxtail, plenty of offal, liver and kidneys, obviously. And, but as children, there was tripe there. Do you think there's a snob factor attached to eating tripe from both in Britain and I'm wondering also in Italy as well? I'd love to go back in time and ask my grandma Roddy, my mum, my, my dad's parents, 
my grandma's relationship with, with, with tripe and eating and how that sort of represented, you know, sort of um, them not having very much money being poor and then maybe, you know, having a bit more money, whether, you know, it, it, it was it was seen as a necessity food. But, you know, my, my grandma just I'm thinking, worried about what people thought. I wonder whether tripe, she might have thought it was considered a bit common because I remember her mentioning things around food. My grandma, Roddy, I remember her, you know, articulating things that I was probably too young to understand about a lot about the war and how they hadn't had very much and this pride and shame around not having enough a great pride in being very resourceful during the war and but then maybe shame about not not having more money or aspiring to being aspiring to eat differently at that changing time the same with my mum's mum Alice although I did I wasn't so aware of that those felt like undercurrents in what my granny or what my granny could I was very very conscious of them with my dad's mum when you mean snob do you mean it people consider it's could go both ways, couldn't it? That it's seen as a, a a good thing to eat it. It's interesting when you look at old English cookery books, often um, they're largely aimed at a middle class market and you would still find tripe recipes in there. So clearly it was served. Samuel Pepys would eat tripe and he certainly wasn't poor. So in if you go back in history, I don't think it was as, as negatively viewed as it was in the 20th century and in the 19th century when perhaps in this country, certainly, it was seen more as a, a poor person's uh, meat, not something that necessarily richer people were eating. Although there were restaurants up north serving tripe. It certainly used to be eaten all over the country because I've found accounts in Sussex from the 18th century of it being eaten down here as dinner fest. And I just wondered whether the reason we don't eat it now, one of the reasons it's declined in popularity is because of the snob factor whether people sort of turn their noses up at it, as they do indeed, I think, a lot of waffle, to be fair. I don't think it's just tripe. I think even liver and kidneys, sweetbreads and brains aren't that widely available. It's so interesting, isn't it? I wonder how other offal became elevated to luxury. Two things happened in Italy. I mean, certainly on one level, I think that maybe not at the level of France. I had a chat with Pierre Kaufman recently at a dinner and he was talking about his love of tripe and it being a, a luxurious food, you know, considering it, you know, a sort of function and, and, and luxury at the same time. I mean, I've got my edition of Arda Boni, which is a, a 1939 recipe book. She was a Roman food writer, actually. But, you know, in that book, you've got tripe from Rome, but you've also got tripe from Bologna. You've got tripe from Genoa. You've got Florentine tripe. You know, I wonder if the relationship was, was with tripe, it was different in different regions. I think certainly in Rome, it was uh, the immediate history that I know um, is that of Testaccio, which was the slaughterhouse district. So where I live in Rome is is actually a brave new world of Rome, actually. It was developed when Rome, Italy became, was united and Rome became the capital. And they built the slaughterhouse in 1870. And so a lot of people who live in Testaccio and still families who still live here worked in the slaughterhouse or built the railways. And that's where you see that history of people who worked here being paid in kind with offal as well as a small wage. And you see, you see a huge migration from Abruzzo and Umbria, other regions of Rome. So you see the, the, the importing of, of, of other regional cooking that met with the slaughterhouse tradition. And that, that's where you see some of these offal dishes. Also, the Roman Jewish tradition had a, had a, had a great tradition of, of offal being the cheapest, the waste. I mean, the classic fro Roman fritto misto of fried things was the free bits. It was the offal, the sweetbreads. I don't know whether there was tripe in that, but certainly wild herbs and flowers. So but what happened was you saw all that. It's like inroads, really are inroads or meeting in Rome. And, and so in, in Testaccio, 
you have this Roman cooking of quinto quarto of the 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 fifth quarter, the offal cooking, which includes tripe that um, emerged here in Testaccio. This sort of almost a new cooking. I was going to say with with all lots of ancient you know, ancient roots from different places, and that and then at the same time, of course, you know the tomatoes arrived, the eighteen hundreds, the tomatoes finally you know taken hold, um, and you and you see the tripa alla romana, which is tripe, which is braised in um, with onion in tomato sauce with lots of wild mint or mentuccia and pecorino romano. And that is the, that's the tripa alla romana. I have 12 trattorias within 50 metres of where I live or 100 metres of where I live. And they all, they all have that on their menu. It's a classic. It's as, still as ordered as, more ordered than a chicken breast, certainly, but as ordered as chicken hunter style or sausages on the grill. The dish you just described sounds lovely. And I'm sure if tripe was served in a wonderful tomato sauce in this country, people would be more inclined perhaps to try it than, as you say, sort of this alien white looking flesh that often is presented in a white sauce with onions. Is that sort of a lack of imagination on our part or is it just simply a case of our taste have changed over the centuries? I'm thinking of myself, imagination or mind does certainly requires um, nourishing, doesn't it? Somebody the other day was describing a uh, deep fried tripe to me that they'd had as a, an aperitivo with fizzy wine and, you know, deep fried and crisp and was salty. And I thought, oh, I, I mean, I've never made that. So, so maybe, yes, it is imagination because we're just not fed in the same way. I've encountered plenty of aversion to tripe in, in Rome by people of all ages. I live above a butcher's shop who's pretty traditional. He always has a big roll of tripe right at the front of there. It's the first thing you see when they come in the shop. You know, and it's, he's not a specialist shop, it's just an ordinary butcher, but he has tripe and nervetti, the tendons, these two white things at the front of the counter. He will often make comments about his older customers still buying tripe. And it looks rather beautiful, actually. It's bleached, obviously, but it's in a big, I mean, it does look like it's half honeycomb and half wet dog tripe, isn't it? It looks like a roll of carpets. So it's right, you know, so, so my imagination is fed by that. I really like tripe. And, and always have. But that's a lot to do with coming here. And I love it in Alla Romana, in tomato sauce, with, with lots and lots of this mentuccia, which I mean, it's a mint family, like Pennyroyal, but it's got a very strong, almost sage mint cappy. <laughs> but it's delicious. And it gives the tomato sauce this lovely, warm spice. And then loads of pecorino romano on top, which is really salty. That's not to say that every plate of tripe is is delicious, but made well, I really love it. And so that then encouraged me to try it. And in Florence, they do the lampedotto, which it's the sort of inner, the smallest stomach, I think, light and feathery. And that's that's braised, which, of course, is how it would have been done in Rome before tomato. If you actually are the Bonnie's recipes, it's in Bianco, so it's pre-tomato. But they braise it. And that lampedotto sandwich is delicious. It's it's almost like a feathery or almost like gills of fish. So what do you think chefs and food writers could do to make tripe more appealing? Well, I think we could all, and I'm including myself as an English food writer, I think we could all start frying it, couldn't we? I really I like the sound of frying it and trying new recipes. I had delicious tripe and white sauce at St. John, because that was the other thing to say. I think I'd been to St. John for the first time in about 98, a couple of years after it opened. And I didn't have tripe that first time, but I'd, I'd had tripe at St. John. But I'd, and I bought the cookbook. And actually, it was one of the first books I brought back to Rome in 2005 or 2006 when I first came, because it's so at home in Rome, even though it's a very traditional English cookbook. You know, Fergus is cooking tripe and, and, and talking about offal and rabbit and, and, and kidneys and skate and anchovies and 
um, but the way he talks about the the quinto quarto and awful cooking was just it it was it was it was what I was eating in the restaurants and then of course I didn't know much about him but then realized of course that he was drawing on these strong English traditions but also French and Italian and eating out and that whole spirit around around offal which does elevate it it doesn't elevate it into luxurious because he doesn't do that with food does he Fergus Henson but it elevates it into goodness mm. and so I probably have to credit him with helping me understand the the, the place that tripe had in 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 it in Roman food so and this is what has been such an important exchange for me because it was thanks to the British tradition and his tradition that I was then able to maybe better understand the tradition here and then actually I must say I think the best tripe in Rome is is at Sino Osteria which is a, a Chinese takeaway but it's a Chinese but it's a Ch- Chinese restaurant and takeaway but it's there it, that's wonderful I mean it's Jun it's uh, um, and he's a young you know runs this restaurant and his father's in the kitchen with this crazy Italian natural wine list, but serving very traditional Chinese food. And their spicy tripe really is a thing of great beauty. Because that's the other thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, around textures in food, going back to the, you know, your first question about what's the aversion, you know, the the, the sort of significance placed on texture in in, in Chinese eating. But I think Fergus as well is very good at that. You know, the the pleasure of textures, the the pleasure of unexpected or, or slightly different feelings. Now we come to my favourite bit of the podcast when I find out just what delights my guest is contributing to the season's virtual and humble potluck supper. So the virtual dish that you were going to contribute to the Come to Be Hungry season feast is Chipa alla Romana. The, so the Ardaboni recipe, which is from 1939, which is for her tripe braised in tomato sauce, which, as I say, can also be made without tomato. You just you just need a meat sauce. But it's, yeah, it's very delicious. And where can uh, listeners find out more details on your work? Probably my Guardian column is the best place. But no, I mean, I do have a blog still, Rachel Eats, which is a very neglected, but it is still there. How many books have you published now? Three. So Three. the one about Rome, the one about Sicily, the one about pasta was the most recent, which is probably, the, 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 the I, I hope, a sort of good reflection of my work now, which I do hope is growing up. That's, and I'm just, and I'm starting a new book now about the whole of Italy. But taking inspiration from the pasta book, so not the whole of Italy, of course, because that would be an encyclopedia or many encyclopedias, but postcards of the different regions. So this is lovely, this conversation, because I'm excited about looking at different ingredients in different regions. So I have a lot more to say about tripe in two years' time all over Italy. Well, that's good to know. I know where to come to (laughs) once for further information. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been brilliant. It's been really insightful. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about Tribe. I think it's so timely. And I do and I do think it's, you know, it is because it could so easily be changed. It's not our budgets can't get us Tribe. It's not like there isn't Tribe to be had. Like we know there are millions of cow stomachs going to waste somewhere. So the point is that you're asking the right question. And actually, maybe we should take it as a positive thing that we ask our butcher and they say, I can't get you any. But actually, it's there it's just a case of how it how it gets to us and that I suppose the more of us that that ask to have it and have it at the front of the counter and and have it bleached I mean you know I mean cooking a whole I have cooked a whole cow stomach and and you could smell it at the end of the road it was an organic you know tripe and it was just it was extraordinary I mean I I just, I don't, you know, there's, I think there's a, a saying in Roman about, you know, if you cook tripe, you don't eat it. 
I think she really uh, hit the nail on the head there, striking and unfamiliar, and it's like nothing else. It really isn't like anything else. I mean, what do you think about these classic ways of serving after descriptions, the tripe and onions or tripe and vinegar? Which way are you swaying? I mean, I know which way I'm swaying, and it's towards the Mediterranean. I have to say, I think tripe in a tomato sauce, uh, I've seen the Ardabonna recipe, and actually she uses a bit of bacon in there as well. So I'm sure it would be a lovely sort of rich tomato sauce that would... <laughs> Perhaps mask any blandness that we fear from the tripe. Uh, I also like the idea that she was talking about the Chinese style as well, which you've experienced. I've not mm. had that opportunity. Um, and I understand that in China, it's, it's the texture is really important. It's not just the, the quality of the food or what that, you know, the, the meat itself. It's the actual texture that's important. I think the chili, ele- the chili element would certainly enliven it. But I have to say, deep fried tripe, I mean, most things that are deep fried taste good. So I I actually think for me, as much as I would, I'm sure the tomato and the spicy versions are good. I think deep fried tripe is the way to go, Mm. I think, for me. Mm. They call it um, Lancashire calamari, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Do they? I think they were trying to get a positive spin on it, Yeah. yeah. Thank you to Rachel Roddy for joining me today and a huge thank you to Neil for his invaluable input and editing skills. Don't forget to check out Rachel's column on the Guardian website and her latest book, The A to Z of Pasta. There are also links to her other books and social media in the show notes. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, let myself and Neil know on Twitter at SJFBilton or at Neil Buttery. You can also find us on Instagram at Mrs. Bilton, that's with two S's, and at Dr. underscore Neil underscore Buttery. And if you really love this episode, please rate and review it on Apple. It really does help listeners locate and engage with the show as they explore new podcasts. If you'd like to discover more about my work, pop along to sambilton.com where you will find details on my books on gingerbread and saffron as well as the Comfortably Hungry blog. You may also want to subscribe to the free Comfortably Hungry newsletter on Substack, which complements this show. It includes recipes and detailed notes from the season's episodes. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and Apple, among other platforms, so that you never miss an episode. Part two of this podcast goes live on the 8th of June, but if you can't wait until then, Neil has already published a full version of these episodes on the British Food History Podcast. You can find a link in the show notes. This podcast was created, researched, produced, recorded and edited by Neil Buttery and Sam Bilton with music and sound effects provided by zapsplat.com. 